So all good preaching, I think, really should follow the Puritans in that they want to apply uh, the the truth, the theology of a text to the hearer in very practical ways. Like they they were considered to be the physicians of the soul. And so they really had a great understanding of human nature, and they just had awesome insights to how to apply a text to particular people. Hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Neglia. This is episode 107, Learning from the Puritans with Dr. Ian Clary. Now, this conversation was recorded uh, just a few weeks ago uh, over Zoom. And so if you've ever been on a Zoom meeting, and I'm going to guess that you have, you know that sometimes the audio quality is hit or miss. And so in this conversation, most of it sounds great, but there's just some minutes where the volume drops. And there also are some kind of awkward pauses where I ask a question and then we have to wait uh, for Ian to respond. I've done what I can to edit all those out, but still, uh, this is being released as a bonus episode, which if you're a regular listener to the podcast, you know the bonus episodes are the ones which have great content, but the audio isn't perfect. So uh, please, uh, with a gracious heart, uh, listen along as myself and Ian and discuss uh, learning from the Puritans, as well as developing and modeling a pastor's heart through our teaching and our preaching, and lots of other things. It's a good conversation. It's it's worth your time. Uh, so Dr. Ian Clary is the Associate Professor of Historical Theology at Colorado Christian University, and has also, yeah, been on pastoral staff of various churches, and he mentions some of that in this. So he is a scholar and a practitioner of these things that he's speaking about. So enjoy this episode, and I will catch you again at the end. Hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast. I'm here with my friend, Dr. Ian Clary. How are you, Ian? Good man. So you're not a not a medical doctor. What's your uh, what's your doctorate? Right. Yeah, I did my PhD uh, University of the Free State in South Africa, actually, which is cool. It was at the Jonathan Edwards Center there, um, and I did it on uh, what's called historiography, uh, the idea of how do you write history. And so my my area was to look at how one particular guy. Uh, approached the past. Uh, his name is Arnold Ballamore. So I don't know if your your readers would be or your hearers, I should say, be familiar with um, a, very, a very famous two volume biography of George Whitfield. So that guy that wrote that for the Banner of Truth, Arnold Ballamore. Um, he wrote a bunch of others, and I just kind of like examined his approach to the past. How did his theology or his you know uh, certain perspectives shape his reading of of the past? And I, I chose him because he was actually one of the founders of the denomination I'm ordained in back in Canada. And uh, his, uh, his, a lot of his family kind of go to churches that I knew. And so I just sort of wanted to explore him as kind of a good local boy that had kind of an international impact. So work between them. So uh, Ian, I'm, I met you. Yeah. We were just reminiscing. Uh, it was three, three years ago. Um, you, yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. You, you came to Cork and you, you taught a one week intensive on, on preaching with the Munster, Munster Baptist College or Munster Bible, Bible College. College. Yeah. NBC. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and I signed up for it and, uh, 
Yeah, you along with uh, Ian. Uh, can you remind me of his surname? Oh, no, you mean Justin. I'm Ian. <laughs> Justin Galati. It's, it's, the end, it's the end of a lot of Zoom meetings today. <laughs> I'm sure it is, man. That's, yeah, yeah. that's so life you, in a corona world. Yeah, you and you and Justin came and taught. Man, I, I enjoyed it so much. I thought it was yeah, really, really, really great. Just week looking at, at preaching. And yep. uh, so he did kind of the... Uh, I hate to make this distinction, but did he approach kind of some of the practical yep. approaches to preaching whilst you were the more like theological or historical? Yeah. So that was the way that happened was, so I've been teaching with Munster Bible College since it first started. So I think in 2014, I was their first teacher. I went out. Uh, so NBC is connected loosely with Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And that guy, same guy I was talking about, Michael Haken. Uh, he was the one sort of on the Southern Seminary side instrumental in getting it, it started uh, with the pastors uh, there in Cork. And so I went out and I taught apologetics for them and I taught spirituality. And then the last course that I taught was uh, was that homiletics one, but I was kind of asked last minute to do it. And so I would only agree to it if I could bring my, my co-pastor at the time, um, Justin Galati. We pastored together at West Toronto Baptist in Toronto. And uh, he's such a good practitioner. I just thought I could do the theology, the church history side of things. And if he could do the practitioner side, uh, I think that that would complement really well. And I think it, I think we did a pretty decent, I, I mean, we had a blast and you guys were just amazing. So I actually still, I was thinking about it this morning. I still remember your sermon, uh, the last day, uh, remember the Saturday, yeah. you just came and like, I think we'd all just had like such a good time. And then you kind of preach that capstone sermon to just like encourage us to like keep going with it, you know? And I yeah. just, man, it was awesome. So, oh man. Yeah, it was yeah. good. I, uh, and so that, that has never been retaught. Is that right? So, so you and Justin, you came together for that one. Uh, yeah, time. no, it's, it should, it should. Uh, it will be. Yeah. But they have somebody else now that's going to do it. So I think the next time I come back, I think is going to be next summer and I, I've been talking with Joy Campbell about what course I'm going to teach. It could be early church history. I might do something along those lines, but I'm not hundred percent sure yet. So. Well, excellent. Well, I appreciated yeah, your contributions on not just the theology, but the history of preaching. And we might, we yeah. might circle back to that in a yeah. little bit, but speaking of the history of preaching, um, Ian, <laughs> what's your history with preaching? Um, I, I, like, I like to start these interviews by asking people what was their first sermon that they ever preached? Uh, How did it go? Man, what a horrible, dark path to walk down. <laughs> it usually is. It usually is it's a like humbling question. To, to it's get a pretty humbling question. Uh, yeah, you know, I was thinking about it uh, in, in preparation for this interview. It's kind of going back in, in my own mind, reminiscing over these things. Um, so years ago, you know, I didn't, I didn't grow up as a Christian. And so uh, I was converted when I was 18 in Northern Canada, Northern Ontario. And, uh, and then not long after that felt the calling to go to Bible college, but I had no idea what that meant. And, uh, this, the, where I did my undergrad heritage college, um, they, they started an extension center in my hometown of Windsor, Ontario. So Windsor, if you know, if you know where Detroit, Michigan is, then you know. Oh yes, I do. Yes. Yeah. They're the border town. Thank you. Uh, and so um, they started this extension center and I started taking, you know, uh, night classes for this Bible college degree, which was pretty awesome. And then I got hooked up with the church that hosted it, Campbell Baptist Church, and uh, became kind of like a student intern there. And so the, it was great. They gave me an opportunity to preach a number of times. And I, I very clearly remember my first sermon was on the, from the Good Shepherd discourse and it was on uh it was 
I'd just become a Calvinist. And so you know how it is, right? When it's like your total cage stage Calvinist, that's sure. all you can think of. And, uh, and so could the good shepherd lose his sheep? And so I was looking at, you know, the five, the fifth point of Calvinism, which was, you know, perseverance. And uh, I'm sure if I was to go back and look at it now, all I, all I would see was just my hardcore reformed agenda coming through and, yeah. you know, but it was fun. Like I, I enjoyed, it. I actually remember like using quotes about what a sheep was according to Luther and stuff like that. And uh, I remember really heavily being, in, I'd just done a John course uh, at Heritage, a week long intensive in John. And we'd use D.A. Carson's commentary and some reason that. And yeah, it was, I'm sure I got my re- reformed credentials uh, <laughs> that day. <laughs> you know, funny enough, my, my laptop right now is being held up by D.A. Carson's John commentary right now. <laughs> oh, that, that commentary is so good. It's so it's, good. It is. It's, it's really good. Yeah, it's really good. It, yeah. It, yeah, I'm not, I don't mean to imply that it's only good for holding up my laptop. <laughs> I just mean that I always have it to hand. So, <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So recalling, and I know that you don't have a manuscript or, or you probably haven't listened to the recording of it, but like, do you think that you would disagree with anything that you said back then? Like, has you, have you Um, doctrinally since then? No, I mean, I've definitely grown theologically. I mean, those were the early days. So I, you know, as I said, I did grow up as a Christian and then I kind of just, when I was, when I was first saved, I was 18 and just sort of defaulted into kind of like generic evangelical Baptist kind of stuff. I didn't really have a theological bone in my body. And, uh, and then I had just, you know, started Bible college. I think that was like year 2000, something like that. And, uh, and then got confronted pretty quickly with Calvinism, which I hated. I mean, I was just, this is a hideous, hideous view of God is what I initially thought mm. until I became a Calvinist. And then once I did, as I said, I'm in that cage stage. It's all I could see. It's all I could talk about. I think I did a decent job with the text itself, like because I was using Carson and so good hmm. um, that if basically if I just kind of like ripped him off, then it was going to be a decent content sermon. Yes. Um, I think if I was to disagree, I think now looking back, like I let my theological agenda shape my reading of the text probably too much. And because uh, I saw Calvinism everywhere, then that's all I could see in that text, which is, you know, perseverance is there. There's no doubt about it. Hmm. Um, you know, Jesus doesn't lose his sheep. He's a good shepherd. Um, but I think, I think I would preach it differently. Um, maybe, maybe instead of hitting hard on the doctrine, I'd probably want to pull the comforts of the text out and like apply that to people in in a different way. You know, sheep are stupid (laughs) and and Jesus loves Mm. us. (laughs) And and you were, and you were slash are one of them. Yeah. A a stupid sheep. (laughs) Right. Because yeah. you yeah. said dumb, um, dumb as sheep was not a band. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you said that yeah, like it kind of brings like shame or is a cringing experience to think through that. And and some people have said similar things because yeah. they believe that they they got it wrong earlier on. They were teaching the wrong things earlier. But you're saying that you taught yeah. the right things, but you had the wrong emphasis yeah. or the wrong heart. Yeah. Yeah. I think, well, as can often happen again, I'm, you know, a lot of, and it doesn't always, but it often happens when you first sort of get into reformed theology, there can be, a, it's ironic because it's the doctrines of grace, but you can become really ungracious and you can become really like overly doctrinal and judgmental and proud. And, uh, and I think I was definitely in that stage when I first preached and this was like, let's hammer those Arminians in our sermons and be like, you know, the thundering John Knox kind of thing. And it's like, that's, that's not the right to preaching you know yeah um did you um get any feedback from it how did you how did you see the error of that 
it's, it's funny. I actually, I don't remember his name anymore. Oh no. Uh, what was his name? Bud. Guy's name is Bud. And I remember him. He was like really intense Calvinist guy in our church. So of course I really looked up to him yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember him was like, that's, you know, that's the kind of preaching we need today. <laughs> right. Which is oh. like this firebrand reform stuff. Okay. It was a pretty, it was a church that was pretty doctrine heavy, which I mean, I think is great. Um, but you know, to, to the point where I would probably would have been encouraged in that kind of tone and approach mm-hmm. okay. in a way now that I wouldn't want to be. Um, and uh, yeah, I remember not long after that, you know, I was getting into the Puritans and speak Puritan sermons. And then, you know, how they're, I don't know if you ever read a Puritan sermon where they're, they're really interestingly structured. They, they had a method back then. And, uh, and so I'm like, well, I'm going to start preaching just like that. And I'm going to make my sermon outline exactly like, you know, uh, John Flavel or somebody's, <laughs> but you know, our day, we, we don't hear sermons that way. So I mean, they're just bizarre sermons that were like, you know, it was all my own work and exegesis and stuff, but then I'd frame it along these certain ways. And it was, they're almost incomprehensible, <laughs> you mm. know, mm. Uh, which again, you allow your agenda to shape how you do these things. Yeah. Hey, I'd like to come back. Uh, can, can we circle back and talk about Puritan mm. sermon structure in, totally. in just in just a little bit? But um, how have you, so hmm, I was expecting that somebody would have pulled you aside and say, you know, Ian, that was great, but we don't need you hammering on this so much. But you had somebody pull you aside yeah. and say, that was great. We need great. more hammering. <laughs> Yeah. Um, how have you, and I don't want to, I don't want to say the, the error of your ways, but, but what right. has caused you to see that it's not about emphasizing like a doctrinal construct in every passage? Yeah, I think it probably just sort of came over time as you kind of grow. So you get out of the cage, right? Of the cage stage there. And so you mellow and you're like, okay, Arminians are Christians too. I admit it. <laughs> you know, you get to, you know, wow, at that point. And then, um, and then I think, you know, especially as I was taking in seminary, I went to Toronto Baptist Seminary for my master of theology. And there you're doing Greek exegesis. You're, you're, you're learning what real preaching looks like, how you stay close to the text. And, and, you know, I remember reading, I think it was an essay by Moises Silva. Um, I wish I could remember the name of it now, where, where he talked about how, yeah, you do approach biblical texts with a, with a, with a set of, you know, uh, lenses on that are your own. So there's not, there's certain subjectivity, um, but he warns against pressing the biblical text too hard, but rather that if you come with an agenda, you have to be able to allow the, the text to shape it. And so not you pouring into your, your theology into a text, whether it's right or wrong, but actually allowing the text to shape your own theology. And that was really helpful. Greg Beal's whole idea of uh, right was his book called "Right Doctrine, Wrong Text." Uh, was also really important. I've not read. Um, because, I can't quote. Oh I can't, man, it's I can't so agree. good. Okay, it's on the list. Yeah, so like now. we all got time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that's, that's an that's an important book because you know we can come to a biblical text right with a set of of preconceptions about what the theology of this text is teaching, and then preach our preconception. And though we might theologically be utterly correct, um, if you were to ask the hearer, was that what that text was really about? You know, mm. they'd be like, no, I didn't think so. Um, because you've just preached it way too, uh, too doctrinally um, to allow the text to actually speak itself. So I think as I was learning those things over time, and uh, really I was getting into like biblical theology and exegesis. Then it was like, what is the, what is the pattern of the text itself? What's the argument, you know, that Paul lays out 
And then you've got to follow that so that you can actually hear Paul's voice coming through your own as you're preaching. Sure. And, uh, and I think that was, that was big time um, for where that, that change occurred. And I still think there's, there is definitely a place for theology and preaching um, and it needs to be there, um, but it needs to be, it needs to actually come out of the text rather than being forced into it. Right. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the distinction and, and yeah, hopefully no one hears this and says, okay, well you used to, you know, have a theological viewpoint and now you don't, and you've grown out yeah. of that. No, you, you maintained that. And right. uh, it just perhaps is at the forefront of uh, every passage or if it is, it's the other, not. the other, yeah, no, you're right. Um, the other big part was, if you remember when I, when, when we taught that course in Ireland, uh, one of the things that we did for the practitioner side was we used a lot of the work of the Sphian Trust workshops or in the UK called Proclamation Trust. And we sort of followed their approach because uh, Simeon Trust, we, we, Justin and I were involved with it in Toronto and we had done a number of their workshops over the years, uh, led them. So we were using that. That also, when I went to my first Simeon Trust workshop, that also really helped me understand how to preach from the text. You know, getting that outline, the skeletal structure of what the text is, those, those were really formative for me too. Oh, excellent. Yeah, we'll make sure that we uh, include a, a link in the show notes for the, the Simeon yeah, Trust. Great. Yeah, which is yeah, so good. Yeah, it's been a big, their, their content has been very informative for me as well too. I haven't been able to make it yeah. to any of their um, events as of yet, but their online content. Yeah. Well. Oh, okay. fantastic. Yeah. So, so let's, let's circle back. So you, you mentioned this, um, Puritan, um, sermon structure. So, yeah. um, I, yeah, I've read Flavel, um, not, not all of it. I don't think anyone has, <laughs> maybe, right. but, um, but yeah, nope. <laughs> I, definitely, you know, I, I worked through a, well, it felt like a lot of his, um, armor of God book. Uh, but again, it's, oh, that's um, that's Gurnall. Oh, that's not Flavel. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. okay, yeah, William Gurnall. So, turns uh, I mean, out they're all they're all great. <laughs> okay, so so what is what is a sermon structure? What's a Puritan sermon structured like? Yeah, so they're going to be. I mean, the Puritans. Don't get me wrong; their their preaching style was awesome for their day. And you know, one of the great takeaways that we should take from from a Puritan sermon is. How do you understand the way your culture communicates? They were brilliant at that. And then communicate in that same sort of way. And so um, the Puritans in their day, they would, they were definitely in, in, in engaged with the text itself. And so the beginning part would really give like the kind of theology and doctrine of a text. And then they would turn to um, the application side of it. And, uh, and then really bring the text to bear. Both of those things are great, but the way that they would do it would be kind of different where it would be point and sub point, sub point, sub point, second point, sub point, sub point, third point. And it was just like, oh my goodness, it was just like wham, 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 wham. And you just get kind of barraged with this stuff. And then they would turn and do the same sort of thing to the application side. Yeah, yeah. And so there was no, you don't get like, where I think in today's preaching, good preaching is gonna feel like in a way, you're almost listening to a story and you're kind of being drawn into it. And, uh, and um, the Puritans, it, was, it would be more almost not a barrage of facts. They're, they're preaching at the heart. There's no doubt about it. And application is a big part of their, their approach to preaching. But its layout would be very didactic. Mm. And so for, for, for us today, where we have a hard time learning, we're, we're shaped by social media and all that. Like to just get a barrage of didactic stuff can sometimes be really hard to deal with. 
Sure, sure. And and yes, that sounds very familiar to the other Puritans that I've read. So you're right, they're kind of interchangeable, but that is their yeah. their uh, hallmark. Yeah, Puritan um, sermons, I think, are better read now than preached. Is that right? Well, even from, so. from reading with, you know, I've read... Um, uh, what's his name? Fuller. And I, yeah, I've, I've, I've dabbled in some, in some Puritans and I've actually found that quite hard to read. I mm-hmm. actually, I have to kind of like read them out loud for me to follow because yep. maybe there's, it's so much like nuanced argument, which hinges upon the next argument and the next argument. I have to kind yep. of like mumble it or mutter it out loud fast yep. to track with it. Maybe it's my brain, just yep. too much social media. No, it's, yeah, I think that's common. And, and you'll get different Puritans who are easier to understand in terms of their preaching uh, so, you know, you get a guy like John Owen and his stuff could be, you know, a lot of his, his books that we have were lectures that he would give, you know, like Mortification of Sin, uh, spin. Mortification of Sin, it's <laughs> uh, another podcast. It is a podcast, uh, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, you know, he, he could be really intense. And then, and, but then if you read somebody like a Goodwin, uh, a lot of his stuff will come from sermons of Richard Sibbs. And uh, yeah, it's, it's so much more devotional. So it's easier to take in. Yeah. So it depends on the guy that you're reading and his personality and stuff. Mm. But what I love, like if you read, I think the text that we used when we did that course for Munster Bible College, uh, one of them uh, had you guys read from was uh, um, uh, Art of Prophesying by William Perkins, one of the earliest of the Puritans. That's right. And yes. uh and, and that was a really, really impactful book on the Puritan era and after because, you know, he lays out what real preaching looks like. And one of the things that I, I really appreciate, in fact, Perkins really changed my preaching. I got into this whole, I don't know if you've ever, if this ever happened with you, but when you kind of get into like the idea of biblical theology, redemptive historical preaching, I went in this, I went in this whole kind of kick for a while where it's like, you don't have any application in your sermons. It's just pure redemptive historical, deal with the text and let the Holy Spirit do the work. And, um, cringing because yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. Oh yeah. So it always happens. As soon as you get into some things, I'm like, Oh, I'm into biblical theology and, uh, let's, you know, let's read all this great, your heart is boss and, and, uh, yeah, know, Herman Ritter boss and all of this. And so that's all you do. And, and then you know, like, my, you know, my application was for about a year straight. My application yeah. was, and may the spirit of God apply this truth to our heart. Let's pray. <laughs> And that's it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But sorry, I mean, you were saying I appreciate yeah. I appreciate the impulse behind it. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it's great. I mean, that's exactly what I did. And if you notice with like redemptive historical preaching, when you're trying to tie every sermon into the biblical storyline, all the all the sermons after a while kind of sound the same, you know? Yeah. And uh and so that's hard. So Perkins was super helpful for me with that because then he showed that really you front load. Uh, your sermons with application and it, they should be the theology, everything should be driven towards application. And, uh, and Justin, who I was doing that course with, he was awesome at that. And uh, yeah, so I, I found that really helpful. So I, so all good preaching, I think really should follow the Puritans in that they want to apply uh, the, th- the truth, the theology of a text to the hearer in very practical ways. Like they're, con- they're considered to be the physicians of the soul. And so they really had a great understanding of human nature and they just had awesome insights to how to apply a text to particular people. And that's another area where they're great. So I don't want, I might not want to follow their, you know, exact, you know, kind of structure of a sermon, but there's so much you want to take away. They call it Puritan plain style, just very direct application oriented, bam, you know, and you walked away and you're like, 
yeah, okay, I know what to do with that text now. Certainly, yeah, there'd be there'd be four or five different different groups that would be addressed, and then yeah. multiple yeah points and some points about what this could mean to you. Yeah, they they could sometimes go overboard with it. It's like it's like they want to pull that text apart for every single kind of possible person. I think the better thing to do is if you know your congregation and what are the particular problems they're going to be struggling with and how that text could apply, you want to be very specific to your hearers. I think. Mm -hmm. And and you use the phrase um, front load with application. Um, does yeah. that mean that literally you're starting the sermon with application or what, what does that phrase mean? <laughs> I think you could. Yeah, I think I think you could enter into a sermon asking a very practical question, you know, like so say you're dealing with a sermon, um, doing a sermon that deals with with suffering. And so, you know, you might start out like, how, how do you wrestle through being a Christian and and God is good and powerful and yet you're suffering? And have you ever asked that question before? And how does that actually affect your, you know, your spiritual life? Like, can you pray to a God who allows you to suffer? And then you go through your text showing how suffering gets used in the Christian life. And uh, that Christ is a suffering servant. So how could we think that we're going to escape suffering when our own Messiah doesn't? And then so you give your, 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 um, your theology of suffering from that biblical text. And then you round back to your application question by saying, look, this is how, how we can suffer well, right? Just like Christ, if you're preaching on Gethsemane, this is him. He's utterly dependent on God. He doesn't want to do what he's going to do. He's freaked out and he's praying, take this cup from me. And yet he, and so he's praying about his suffering. He's undergoing physical anguish. He's actually bleeding in his skin from the, the sheer mental anguish he's going through. And then he gets no. Uh, the answer to his prayer is no, which is amazing to think that the father says no to the son. Uh, and then, and then his response is he hears, you know, the crowds coming, being led by Jesus and his response is to stand up and walk directly into suffering. And, uh, and so how do you do that? How do you pray through suffering? Can you take that suffering and grab it by the horns like Christ did and wrestle it to the ground? And what's the meaning that you derive in your suffering in light of the gospel? Something like that, you know what I mean? And then, and it's like, it's, it's application driven, but it's deeply theological. And then it turns back into the practical. I think, I think the Puritans were great for that. Wow. Um, Ian, you said earlier that you, you haven't preached for the past couple of years, but man, you just preached yeah. to me. <laughs> I, I need to hear it, man. We're all suffering right now with this virus. So it's yeah. like a good reminder. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. You are, you've got the heart of a preacher um, and it's, it's coming through. Uh, um, you've uh, some lucky students that are oh. able to benefit from this. Um, That's kind of you. Well, Ask I mean, them and see what they say. <laughs> uh, they're not on the Zoom call. They're probably on the, the other Zoom call. But um, so often, like my third question that I ask people, and I was actually wondering if I should ask you or not, but like, but what is your sermon prep routine? I get realizing that you you aren't regularly preaching anymore. Do you have anything for yeah. us? Yeah, the way I would normally do it, and this is, it'll be a bit different depending on um, your hearers and whether they're, you know, they've gone to seminary, it's not always the case, and done, you know, the biblical languages. So I, I had a great Greek professor at Toronto Baptist Seminary, a French guy named Pierre Constant. He actually trained under D.A. Carson, did his PhD at TEDS under Carson, and was just really of that kind of like rigorous approach to the Bible that Carson is famous for. And so I did three years of Greek exegesis with him, and really he was... He was a, he's a pastor and he really understood the importance of like 
taking everything you're learning in your Greek classes and applying it to the church. So preaching was big for him. So we learned how to do what's called discourse analysis, um, where you look at a Greek text, you can break it down into its sort of like argumentative pattern. You know, so you look at all the, where are the conjunctions and prepositions and you, you sort of like lay out an argument or a structure of a text and then allow that to shape your sermon outline. And, uh, and so that was that, that, that connection between your, your exegetical outline and your sermon outline, they just rammed home into us and it was super helpful. And so I've just always done that. So like my Greek's getting pretty rusty right now, but um, normally what I would do is I'd take the text, I'd break it down just like we learned in Greek, uh, break it down into that discourse analysis structure, and then comment on it using various commentaries and, and lexicons just to get at what is this text actually about? I need to know this before I can know anything else. What is this text about? And then I would take that, that exegetical outline, translate it into a sermon outline. And then if I'm doing it well, I'm thinking of those practical questions again. I want to organize my yeah. sermon according to what those are. And I think the idea of like preaching one point is really important um, because that's basically all your hearers really going to take away. What's the major, what's the major point of this text that I want you to hear over and over and over again. So I got to find out what is that one point and then how do I apply it in light of the, the, the exegesis. Hmm. And so, yeah. And then, and then you want to think through things like how do you, what it was a good illustration. It could be, an, you know, we're in coronavirus uh, territory right now. So I'm, I'm thinking that, that all the good preaching right now is going to be dealing with things like, you know, God is sovereign, even though our times are uncertain, you know, um, that we can trust him even when things are difficult, those sorts of sermons. So you're like, what is my context? What do my, what do my people need to hear? And how can I illustrate it well uh, yeah. to drive that point home? Yeah. And, and so it's been, you said, three years since your last sermon? Yeah, it's crazy. I actually remember, my, I remember what the last sermon was, too. I'm not asking about the last one, only the first one. <laughs> I don't want to hear about your <laughs> farewell address. I just want to hear about your awkward, cringy first one. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because those don't make for, for awkward, funny, good stories. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, hey, on, on the topic of outlines, okay? So this is something, so it's, it's weird because you're like, to some degree, well, I mean, literally, you're like my old teacher, you know, my, my old prof. <laughs> I, you know? um, I mean, I got a lot to learn from you. No well, I was, I was like a student of yours. And um, we had you know, in a bit of a breakout workshop type or type thing. Um, I was given a passage and yeah. broke it down. I think it was the burning, the burning bush passage, actually. Okay, cool. And yeah. there was a distinction. It was um, had to sit with it and then I had to write an exegetical outline of it and then a sermon outline for it. And this is me three right. years ago. I, I'm like, well, what's the difference between an exegetical outline and a sermon outline? Um, you know, I asked, yeah. that. It's like, well, basically we just, we preach what it says. And from an expositional focus and from a, you know, quote unquote, verse by verse focus, you know, my understanding was to some degree, well, you just preach what it says. And so the exegetical yeah. outline is the preaching outline. But, right. but you're making a distinction. Could you maybe help yeah. us or other people that, that think like me or thought like me or yeah. think like how I thought? <laughs> What's the difference yeah. between exegetical and sermon? That, that's where, again, like the Simeon Trust stuff was super helpful because they're, they're really good at being able to like help you transition from here's your exegesis. So even if you're not using a, original biblical languages, you can still 
do that in a good way using the English text if English is your first language that you're preaching from. And so you get the structure of, of say, you know, a section in Paul. And once you see that, that helps you get at the meaning. Oh, here's the main verb or here's the imperative that's driving everything else. You don't want to preach, you know, maybe a supporting passage that supports the main verb. You don't want to preach that supporting one as though it's the main part of the text, mm -hmm. right? So your exegetical outline is going to help you get at, okay, here's the main command. These are all supports for the command. So I need to be preaching the command. That's, that's the centerpiece. So you'll see that from your exegetical outline. But then you want your sermon to be hearable um, for your listeners, right? And so an exegetical outline might be fairly detailed and might be over much for them to sit and listen to for like 35 minutes or however long you preach. So then you got to take, stay true to that original meaning that you've got from your interpretation and hermeneutics and exegesis. And then you translate that into a sermon outline that's going to have a certain logical flow that makes sense for a hearer. And, uh, and so that might not be, I, I think because I think the verse by verse preaching is sometimes too atomistic. It takes, mm. it takes the part, the text apart too much. And I think really it's kind of like thought by thought is the better way. And so as long as you're true to the, what the thought is, um, you're pulling it directly out of the text, you can kind of construct your, your sermon in a way that's going to make sense to a hearer as you maybe want to draw them into a story or something like that. And so I think that'll be the kind of main difference. And then you just, you, however that's going to look will depend on the particular sermon you're preaching. Wow. Absolutely. Yeah, that phrase atomistic. Yeah. I don't think I've heard yeah. that word before, but I, but I understand what you mean. And yeah. yeah, having been converted and um, in a tradition that really focuses on verse by verse preaching, a lot of times, and this is maybe at its worst, a lot of times, allegedly verse by verse preaching treats every verse as if it is a self-contained unit or preaches yep. every book as if it's Proverbs. You know, with Proverbs, it's yep. like there's one little thought and then you move on to the next little thought. And yep. I mean, for the one hand, maybe Proverbs isn't meant to function that way anyway, but right, fair treating enough. the book of James or treating whatever as if it's like, here's a collection of nice little thoughts, but to see rather yep. that there is a, a flow or um, a melodic line, you could say. That there you go. All of this. <laughs> I paid attention. Um, there you go. <laughs> yeah. So rather than necessarily focusing on verse six, then verse seven, then verse eight, but to say, what does all of this say together and how can we bring yeah. this out? Yeah, because, you know, again, that happens, you know, akin to the cage stage uh, for Calvinists. Uh, you also get that when it comes to like reformed preaching, right? So we look at, uh, say, Martin Lloyd-Jones, right? Mm -hmm. Who's an amazing preacher, 20th century in London, and uh, very, very big impact uh, on the reform development of the 20th century. And so he preached in that atomistic way. Now he could, because he was so uniquely Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he was a great man among great men, you know, if you want to put it that way. And so very hard to emulate. And so, but a lot of reformed preachers want to do that, right? Where, oh, he pulled apart a text. He could preach, you know, like 10 sermons on Ephesians 3, 1, you know, yeah, so I must yeah, do that too. Yeah. It's like, yeah. oh, guys, don't do that. You're going to rip it apart. And, uh, um, and so I, the thought by thought is helpful because that actually gets the flow of argument uh, from from your text uh and and you might you know it might not be that you don't get to the actual point of the thought until you're like three or four verses in 
And so then once you learn, oh, verse five is actually the major purpose of this text, that's actually going to drive your sermon outline so that you might actually have to start with verse five as your first point of your sermon, even though it's like halfway into the section, you know, like that, because it's, it's, it's the purpose. And so I need to, I need to front load that in my sermon. Yeah, um, yeah. And so, yeah, I think really a really helpful volume two, it's a two volume work is that I don't know if you've ever seen that by Mark Dever, those two big volumes, one on the old Testament, one on the new. Promises sermons. made and promises kept, I think. Yeah. I can't remember what it's called, but those, those I'm, two I'm big, fairly big certain, books. Yeah. I think, I think it's that. Yeah. Yeah. And he, that, that's great because he just helps you get it. Like here's, here's the thought of each of these sections. And so then you can frame your sermon, like the text you're going to preach from as like, where does the thought begin and end? That's the section I need to preach. And that's kind of how you choose the limits of, of those texts for what your sermon is going to be. Instead of just, okay, here's verse one. I'm going to spend an hour on it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Or, or yeah, if, if, as you said, if verse five is the, the main focus of the paragraph, but you give equal time to verse one, two, three, four, five. That means that you're going to be 20 minutes in, 25 minutes yep. in before you get to the main point. Yep. And some people, some faithful people have been tracking with you the whole time. And then there also is a large chunk that yep. you've lost. Yeah, gone. And, and you use the word hearers a couple of different times. I think it's important to remember that when we preach, we're preaching to hearers, you know, yeah. they're, they're not really, they're not following your notes along. And they also haven't spent the hours that you have. They're not as excited about it as you. So you're trying yeah. to, to some degree, grab their attention and make it as easy as possible for them to grasp this truth. I'm not yeah. saying that we should be just like silly or um, yeah, needlessly fluffy preachers, but yeah. we we are addressing hearers, not not readers at the time. Yeah, yeah. That that then points to the importance of like pastoral ministry for preaching because. If you're a good pastor, you're going to be in the life of your congregation. You're going to know them. And so then you're going to preach according to the needs you know your, your congregation has, right? So if, if you have a predominant number of people in your congregation struggling with assurance, say, um, then you're probably going to want to like harp on that is hmm. what ways can this, this passage assure my readers of God's love for them or something like that, right? Whereas like in a different church, that might not be the problem. And so your application might look different. So really knowing your people is so important. Yeah. And, you know, in our correspondence over the past couple of years, I, I do know that you know your people. Um, you you don't overshare, but you do definitely let it know that you're, you you were pastorally engaged with your congregation. And then even, actually, yeah. I know even you're to some degree pastorally engaged with your students. Um, yeah, it's weird. I Pastoring, you know, I thought when I was leaving Toronto to come to Colorado Christian University to teach, I thought, well, I guess I'm leaving pastoral ministry behind for a while, you know, and I was, my, within my first year, I was like, man, I've never pastored so much of my life. <laughs> <You know? laughs> students need it. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely an element. There can, like, I'm going to, I think today I'm teaching on perseverance uh, in my theology classes this afternoon. Man, you're, always, when I get really you're constantly doing this. You're the, you're the one string perseverance guitar from your first sermon up until so, now. Yeah. <laughs> I never thought of that. <laughs> but I, I do get preachy in that lecture. And I, and I was just doing the resurrection. Actually, it was awesome. Right in Holy Week, I guess you a couple of lectures on the resurrection. And, and so I, I just knew, okay, man, like these students are really struggling with the coronavirus and the uncertainties. And uh, how is the resurrection going to bear on that in Holy Week as we're coming up to an Easter that we're not going to be able to celebrate God's people? Yeah. And so it was like, even though I was dealing with some pretty intense theology, I was, it, it was getting pretty preachy. There's no doubt about it. You know, 
I could just, cause I was just feeling it come out of me. Oh, good. Well, that's yeah. Yeah. And so a final question, I'm, I'm looking at the clock. I know you have time to eat your lunch and then eat your, <laughs> uh, sorry, do your next lecture, but yeah. um, how, how can someone preach pastorally in a way that's not, um, meddling in people or, or rather a better way that's not only addressing felt needs or, or maybe even yeah. a, third, a third way how can you be preaching where you're not just preaching at one person where you're um, doing yeah. a counseling session for one person and 120 other people have to listen in as you're talking to so-and-so yeah that's tough right yeah, I threw I mean, a lot you of questions th- at you. you you could just pick one <laughs> yeah well no they're all good and they're all related I mean yeah you gotta run you don't want to run the risk of you know, person you're counseling showing up, you know, Sunday morning sitting there like, whoa, that was way too much information about yes. me in that sermon. You don't want that because that's like, you know, there, there's there's some privacy issues I think that are involved there. Although there is on the flip side, there are those times where, I mean, if you've ever heard this yourself, is when you're when you listen to good preaching, where you walk away and it felt like that guy was talking to me, you know, Correct. because yes. the text was so relevant to what you needed to hear at that moment. So that's that is a fine line between those. I know, yeah. But I think too, I think that the greater you get, some of these pastors who just ha- have a click within their church, they hang out with one group, and they don't know anybody else. I think that's really dangerous. That actually happened in that first church where I first preached in. The pastor is very doctrinal, had his crew, hung out with them. Everything was kind of relevant, relevant to what they thought of him, and then the rest of it was kind of like, you know. Neither here nor there, hmm. and but I think you need to you need to know your whole congregation so that you can gauge the climate of the congregation. And you really it's like this too with your doctrinal, like the level of your doctrinal preaching. You want to hit the median, right? So you want your sermon to affect the really theologically engaged people that are really zealous in your church and have something for them. But for those who are you know maybe you know a bit more simple minded, have a hard time wrestling through these issues. You want to be able to hit them too. And that's the same with application is like gauge where your congregation is at and hit those kind of common issues that I think that you see, but that again can only happen if you actually know your people and know sure. what the broad range of your church is like, right? A, 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 the sheep hear their shepherd's voice. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's some times where like a visitor might show up in the church, hear you preach, everybody else is blown away by it. And they're like, ah, I didn't get it. And it's because, well, they don't hear your, you're not actually their shepherd. And so they don't actually hear your voice the way your sheep, you know, Calvary Cork, those people know your voice. They love you for your preaching. They hear you like, that guy is awesome. This is exactly what I want to hear. And, uh, and so then somebody else might not have that same appreciation. And that's only because I think the sheep hear their shepherds, you're, you know, yeah. the under shepherd of Christ. And so they hear your voice in a unique way. And sometimes that doesn't translate. I don't know if you ever had it where you're like, you know, I love that guy's preaching. And you hear him online and you're like, eh, it doesn't have the same effect. But then when you're there, you're the congregation, it, it affects you in a totally different way. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And and I think on the topic of like, yeah, hearing you know, the, the, the shepherd's voice, um, I think this is never more evident than during this coronavirus thing that we're all in. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, the the options are limitless right now. You could tune into any church you want on whatever totally. time zone, you know, you could be in your, and, but people keep tuning in to Calvary Cork, you know, um, cool. and, and vice versa. And I think it's because they don't want like the fanciest live stream or the most polished or the best band. They want to yeah. see like somebody that they know and they want to hear yeah. from somebody that is invested in their lives. And yeah. so 
uh, you know, if people are, are additionally listening to some other, you know, famous, that's great, cool. But yeah. I think there's a, a great, people really do miss like their pastor, their voice, their worship team. However, yeah. if it's just shot on an iPhone, if it's not the greatest quality, like they don't care because it's that yeah. pastoral connection. Yeah, so the church I attend here in Lakewood, uh, Colorado, is called Redeeming Grace Church, and it's pastored by a, a guy, Ryan Wassell, uh, just an awesome guy, really great preacher. He, his, I think his greatest strength as a preacher is that he really knows how to preach to the heart hmm. and really stir affections with preaching, and there's a real kind of gravitas to the way he preaches. Um, he's definitely very, you know, theological and, and that sort of thing, too, but I, I don't know. I just I always find my affections really stirred with his preaching. It's great. You know, the way they the, the church is doing it is they don't even video it. It's just an audio recording. Oh. And so on a Sunday morning, they give them their order service. We have our YouTube videos of songs that we, we sing together, you know, as a family, you do scripture readings. And then you just sit and listen to him preach. You can't even see him. I actually find it more beneficial that I don't see him for some reason. And just hearing his voice. And wow. that's great. My yeah. goodness. That's that's so counterintuitive. But that's yeah. that's what you and your family need is, yeah. That that yeah. relational pastoral context. Yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. Well, my goodness, you know, this this interview has gone longer than I thought it would. Um Yep. No worries. <laughs> I'm long winded, that happens. <laughs> No, it's just, it's, just been, it's been good. And you know what? I, at the beginning, I said, hey, this is my friend, Ian. You know, I'm actually, I'm pretty conservative with the word friend. I, I do not throw that word around very carefully. Yeah. And I haven't seen you as much as I would like to. But like, man, we clicked. We clicked super good. Yeah. And I kind of like told people, totally. like, hey, I made yeah. a new friend this week. I'm excited. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, once, 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 yeah, once travel becomes a thing again yeah I, I either you come here or i go there yeah. I, i'd love to see you again well i i loved it because i remember just as i was getting ready to come to come back to cork and as and i got the class list and i was like just trying to like you know i was like lurking on the internet trying to figure out who my students were and then i found your twitter and saw that calvary cork pin with the black flag logo on it and i was like <laughs> wait a second there's somebody in my class who knows who black flag is <laughs> and i was like this is awesome and so yeah it was pretty cool like the the kind of punk rock connection on that one that's a whole other we, thing we were definitely meant to be friends <laughs> yeah you know i i have this other idea for a podcast one of these days of just like yeah. punk rockers that god saves and is using it in ministry there's like oh there's like seven or eight of us, <laughs> but totally. I think totally. maybe, I mean, maybe there's more, oh, maybe well. they're listening now and we can connect, <laughs> but I think that there's just things that, um, yeah, that have formed me for better and for worse. And then to see how God has used those things in pastoral yeah. ministry, and I'm sure you too. Yeah. It's funny. I was in the gym at, at, at school right before all this stuff happened. And so I was still going to the gym and there was this guy in there that was, that was working out and he had a, he had a shirt that said straight edge on it. And I was like, wait a second. So I go out to him, I was like, are you straight edge, man? And then it turned out like, you know, this kid was from California, all into the whole hardcore punk scene out there and stuff. And so we clicked immediately. <laughs> nice, nice, nice. Well, I look forward to having you on my upcoming yeah. punk rockers who got saved and now are pastors. That'd be, podcast. Fun. That'd be fun, man. I'd, It'll be, yeah, doing a, it. a short-lived mini-series of all, all seven of us. <laughs> Maybe there's more, who knows, who knows? <laughs> Okay, cool. Thank you. Cool. Enjoy enjoy your lunch break for the next 11 minutes and then uh, have a great class. There you go. All right. Thanks so much. Cool, man. Have a good one. Cheers. So that was good stuff. And thanks again to Ian for giving up his lunch break uh, for this episode. You know, 
He mentioned a lot of uh, books and articles, and I've tried to keep track of them. And most, if not all of them, um, there will be links in the show notes of this episode if you want to chase down anything and get a copy or look up something um, for yourself. And we just spoke about it in the last few minutes. I do want to just like put out a call. If there's any punk rockers that are listening to this, um, if uh, if the Lord saved you and if he's using you in a pastoral sense, if you're a, a punk rock preacher, um, actually do get in touch. Because as I said, I don't think there's that many of us and I would love to connect and uh, maybe do something in the future. Anyway, just wanted to throw that out there. Um, so anyway, I hope that this interview and all that we do at the Expositors Collective helps you to grow in your personal study and your public proclamation of God's word. 